Welcome to the Iconic Womanhood Podcast, where we celebrate and learn from the wisdom of authentic, brilliant, conscious, and creative women from all around the world. This podcast will leave you inspired, empowered, and equipped to become truly iconic. And now, here is your host, Akena. She is a transformational coach and speaker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Iconic Womanhood Podcast. And I am so excited because I have another really special guest. And let me tell you, all my guests are special, but there is a particular group of women that is particularly special to me because I have gotten to know them over eight wonderful months. And today we have an extraordinary woman. Her name is Dr. Erica Bullock and the crowd goes wild. Erica, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Ikene. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to spend this time with you. It is. And you know, I know you guys are listening. You hear me getting excited, but you don't know why, right? Well, I'm about to read her bio. I'm about to read her bio so you understand who she is and why she's on. And um, and we'll talk more about why this episode is so important to me as a woman, to me as a feminine leader, to you as a woman, to you as a mother, as a person in community. What, what I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read. Dr. Erica Bullock's bio. She is an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work uses diverse theories from urban sociology to technology studies to examine how issues and ideologies within mathematics and STEM education grow out of historical precedents and to examine how power operates within these disciplines to create and maintain racial inequities. Dr. Bullock is a 2017 National Academy of Education Spencer Foundation Postdoc Fellow and a 2019-20 Nellie McKay Postdoc Fellow. Her work has been published in outlets including Educational Studies, the Journal of Education, Review of Research in Education, and Teachers College Record, as well as several books. She has also been featured in The Atlantic and was awarded the 2017 Taylor and Francis publication Best Paper Award and the 2021 Early Career Publication Award for the American Educational Research Association Special Interest Group on Research in Mathematics Education. So can you see why I'm excited? Let's do that again. And the crowd goes wild. (laughs) Welcome, Erica. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you on here finally. Yes, thank you for that beautiful introduction. And this is definitely overdue. So I'm excited to get to talk today. I am too. I am too. Before we uh, go into the, as we say in Nigeria, the cocoa of the matter, the heart of the matter, right? So, so Erica, you just learned that the cocoa, the next time you meet in Nigeria, you're like, is this the cocoa or not the cocoa, (laughs) right? So before we get into the heart of the matter, you know, I told everyone that I met you and we got to get to know each other over eight months. And, and that is really because I met you because you joined the Iconic Woman Mastermind. Um, but I want to kind of, you know, follow your path to today, your journey, right? So 
you became a professor. When I met you, you were already a success story, right? You had already done all this great work. Tell us how you got there. And then if you can tell us how you decided after already being successful to then join the mastermind, and then we will continue from there. Okay, well, I'll start, um, I guess, uh, college is a, a pretty good way to start. Um, I was a computer science major at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and when I graduated, you know, one thing that no one tells you is that you start college and then there's four years, mate, or give and take between when you start and when you finish and the world goes on. So when I started college, um, they were saying, oh, major in computer science, you're going to make six figures coming out of school and all this. But then four years passes, the dot-com bust happens, the economy shifts, and people just, that's not the case by the time I finish. So um, I was working, I actually worked in Atlanta at uh, Turner Broadcasting and was laid off. And I was talking, I was actually laid off, funny thing, corporations don't love you. <laughs> I was laid off after working Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, and New Year's Eve day. They laid me off on January 2nd. Wow. Um, yes, because they were moving operations to, um, and, and were uh, letting people go. So I stayed in Atlanta and worked uh, some temp jobs and things like that. And by the summer, my mother says, look, we are happy to help you, but we need to put a sunset on this and you need to come home. I'm from New Jersey originally. And I said, okay, well, just give me until I think it was September 1st, I said. And I'm looking and looking and looking. And I end up responding to an ad to become a mathematics teacher hmm. and the they were desperate at, at the time as we are now for um, high school mathematics teachers and all they were doing was evaluating your transcript and hmm. if you um, had the, the appropriate coursework then they would allow you to teach on a provisional license mm-hmm. and all of that then then your license licensing would be free So I said, okay, I have nothing to lose. This is a good way to hold me over until I can get the job that I want. Yeah. So I'll go ahead and become a teacher. I was, um, I had an interesting interview experience. That's a different story. But to say that they took a risk on me would be, would be an understatement. (laughs) Um, I got the job, I think on Thursday and planning started on Monday. uh, First, so just a few days before we started. And I started teaching. Well, I was teaching high school mathematics in the, in the Atlanta area. And it was so difficult, mm. but it was one of those things where it was like good hard because mm. I knew that, okay, I, I have something here and I am actually a third generation formal educator. And, um, so I realized I was tapping into something that I that I had inside of me and decided actually to go to graduate school the following year to get my master's to learn how to teach because the one thing I didn't know was how to teach. I was just learning on my on my own. Wow. Right. 
So, and I, I always say, if I ever run into students from those first two years, I always want to apologize and thank them for allowing <laughs> me to experiment on them because I had all the right intentions, but yeah. I was really experimenting and doing my best. And um, in graduate school, I really fell in love with um, philosophy, with theory, with, with research, with the idea of being able to ask why all the time and um, actually having ways to start to figure out why. So I decided to pursue my PhD because why not? <laughs> I went ahead and continued into my, my PhD. I started my PhD's program at Georgia State University in the spring of 2009. Mm -hmm. I finished in the spring of 2013 and um, then went on to be a professor of mathematics education at the University of Memphis for three years mm -hmm. and then took a very big leap thanks to the urging of a friend it's really important to have friends. I say the um, height of friendship was for me to have a woman in my life who um, knew that pushing me on to a different position would hurt her in terms of losing a friend and a colleague mm. that she really appreciated having, but would help me. And um, so thanks to her urging and her friendship, I ended up accepting a position here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I think we are now tied as the number one public school of education in the country. Wow. Um, recognized as one of the best um, schools of education around the world. So I am literally at the top of my game. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so I have been here for now six years. I am up for 10 years. So you said assistant professor, and I don't know when this would air, but maybe by the time this airs, <laughs> I might be associate professor. So we'll wow. see <laughs> yeah. how that goes. Yes. Um, but yeah, so um, in love with the work that I do, um, in love with the research that I do, in love with how I get to actually impact the world in terms of how we think, which I think is a really powerful thing to do. So um, yeah, I'm loving it. Oh, wow. I love this. I, so I, I had to get my, my notes and write <laughs> because there's so many nuggets in what you said. First of all, something popped into my head as you were talking just now, that teachers are the original thought leaders. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. The original thought leaders and, and really leading the thoughts, the minds of our future. And so shout out to all the teachers, all the educators. And yes. I love that you came from a legacy of educators. So mm -hmm. like it's in your blood, it's, in mm -hmm. the, it's inside your blood, right? But here's what I love about you and, and what your story highlights and something that I feel like we can all learn is that even though it was inside of you, even though you obviously had a natural affinity, which I think the other thing is, well, let me take a little tangent, is that despite the fact that you started out thinking about practicality, computer science will take you to a financially secure sort of career, and that didn't happen, God took you the long way around to where he meant for you to be, because it sounded like your heart kind of sang when you got into that classroom, when you started to educate, and you continue to do that at different levels. But here's the thing that I, I, I am just, it's resonant for me in my soul, is that you had this wisdom, this legacy, this you know, inside of you, in your bloodline, in your, you know, it's just, it's innate gifting. 
you had a measure of education, but you still had the, the heart and the humility to say, you know what, I don't want to stumble through this and keep stumbling through this with these kids on the line. I want to go and learn because it takes the heart of a leader to say, I want to keep investing in mastery. And not only did you get a master's, then you go and you get a PhD. Then you go and you continue to do more, like you're continually investing in mastery. And I think that that is one of the things, whenever I meet the women I consider truly iconic, they are, that is one of the hallmarks, that they have a growth mindset and they have so much wisdom and knowledge, but they are both aware of their power, but humble enough to keep seeking out more knowledge. Right, right. It is, it's really important. I I think, and I'm not going to start quoting scripture because I will misquote, but, but I will say um, there is a, a, there is in the Bible, there is reference to the idea that a teacher has greater ca- accountability. Yes. Um, and I, I hold that dear. And I think in watching uh, my grandparents, especially my maternal grandparents were both educators and watching them and the, um, the impact that they had on not just their students, but their community. I remember standing at my grandmother's wake and student after student after student, she taught for 38 years and had not taught for about uh, 20 years by the time she passed, but student after student after student coming in with story after story about the impact that she had on their lives. And I think that is a really sacred trust. And so it is one thing, and in teacher education, we talk about loving your students, and I have thoughts about that. But and and I think having a heart for what you do is is important. But if that's the only thing that we talk about, then we are really not only shortchanging, but I think we are we are operating in a space of malpractice relative to what it is that we're doing as teachers if we don't take the time to um, to hone our craft to really investigate deeply the what and the why and the how, um, especially the why. I think we're a lot of times teachers, um, formal K-12 educators and and the like are told what to do and how to do it, but not a lot of conversation about why, which, which is really the thing that allows you to make informed decisions as a professional uh, trusting yourself and your professional instincts relative to the people that you're working with. Mm. And we have that responsibility in this role as teachers, and I would extend that to coaches, um, uh, leaders of any kind, to make sure that we are that we are continually sharpening our, our tools mm. um, of our trade in order to make sure that we are doing right and the best that we can by the people that we work with, the people yeah. that we serve. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I really do think that I, I, that scripture sits heavy with me all the time, mm-hmm. because even though I'm not a teacher in the sense of like being in a school, um, I operate in the teaching space in the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And then even as a person who mothers and nurtures children, I'm teaching, you know, as an aunt, I'm teaching. So we are all teaching and we often... Mm-hmm. We are comfortable telling people and trying to tell people you should, if you've ever muttered, if you're listening to this on the podcast, if you've ever said to someone, you should, hello, you stepped into the teaching space, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to tell them what to do. And that scripture is, I think, such a powerful um, reminder 
an admonition to us all that we owe it to ourselves to continue to study, to show ourselves approved, to sharpen our tools, as you've said. And you know, there's something, I, I happen to know this because I've gotten to know you, um, that, and I, I believe that's what brought you to the mastermind. The other tool that we need, and this, I think, well, I'd like to touch base on your work a little bit, your research is the tool of the heart. Right. So while you may be an incredible teacher, you may know the techniques and the methodologies and all of that, but if you haven't done that hard work, then, you know, and I have a daughter in high school, by the way, and there are some experiences she's had with teachers. I'm like, do, you need, do, do I need to roll up? Like, what? What are we doing? <laughs> Where are we going? And I have to like- I've had to roll up on behalf of parents sometimes, yeah. so I understand <laughs> Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do they know who you are? And, like, ah. and then the Holy Spirit is like, uh, yeah, so calm down. Let me handle it. Let, let, let's talk about it, right? And then we'll have a conversation about conscious and unconscious bias and all of these other things. But yeah, and even when I first moved to the US, my teachers were very uh, integral. You know, when I, so I was born here, I went to school here. Actually, it's funny. They were all integral. I went to Montessori. I had Montessori education, early education. And then when I moved back to Nigeria, my teachers were incredible. This is why I was able to come back to the U.S. at 16 and, you know, intellectually be on par or better than most of the students that I was encountering. But then, you know, I was meeting and experiencing the power of unconscious bias or conscious or unconscious bias in education without realizing it. Because I came from Nigeria growing up. Um, I was 17 when I moved back here to go to college. And I had never really encountered racism in any particularly relevant way growing up in Nigeria, even though we have some of those situations, but it's nothing like here where, you know, you are growing up in a predominantly white society. Right. Um, and I went to a, what they would call a PWI, right? A predominantly mm-hmm. white institution at the time. And so I was, I, when I came back, I remember having a professor and the first time I was a kid that always did well in science, always did well in math. I did a, we used to call it ad math, further math, like for the, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just regular math. This is next level math. And I remember <laughs> my, one of my professors, um, he had given me a B plus or something. And I went to him to ask, you know, why, what is it that I did that disqualified me for an A? Like, what did I do wrong? Show me. And I wanted him to explain it to me. I wasn't even confronting him. I I couldn't understand what I did wrong. I thought I did it right. And he had no real answer. But he said at the end of the conversation, you should be happy. You know, I, I didn't expect someone like yourself to even do this well. And at that moment, I, it, I became, oh, wait a minute. So it was like, wait, this is actually not about me. Even though I didn't have the language and the understanding at 17 years old, that happened a couple more times. And now when I look back, I actually don't realize, I didn't realize then, but it started to create a narrative in my brain that I didn't actually realize that caused me to backpedal just a little bit more. And so this is why when I think about your work and your research, I think how important it is, 
how critical it is. And, and honestly, Erica, I'm not gonna lie, when I, when I learned about your research, I was, I, I got down on my knees. I was like, God, I'm so grateful to be part of her journey and help me to do it justice. Help me to add value to her because what she's doing is so critical. You know, and this is your research around racial inequity in, in schools and, and how these structures exist. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Thank you for that. That is really sweet of you. I appreciate that. I, um, so I can actually start with the story that you, that you just told about your, your teacher. And the, the thing that was happening from my perspective in, in my research, I would look at his response to you saying you should be happy as evidence that this person was operating from a perspective of seeing you as either a Black child or as a uh, Black girl or as an immigrant, however, however he was looking at you, but it, or it was probably the combination of all of those as someone who was, I would say, inherently deviant. And what that means is that he was, he was looking at you and saying, well, okay, um, there is something about her in either one of these identities or a combination of these identities that automatically sets her behind mm. the, the, the curve, behind what is normal. And therefore, she should be thrilled mm -hmm. that she did above, um, far above average with this B plus. If C is average, she did far above average with this B plus. And because that is really outside of the reach of someone who, who is in this deviant or subnormal or below normal abnormal position. Wow. Hmm. And so what I do, and I'm, I'm very careful not to charge people with, um, with thinking in certain ways and, and labeling. But what I do is I look at what they say or how they think is evidence of a particular type of logic or a way of thinking that works in the world and or works in the world according to race particularly. So I would say that, that this, this logic or this way of thinking is evidence of this broader understanding of black children, which is the, the area of my interest as inherently deviant and therefore incapable of uh, certain forms of achievement, um, certain, certain um, levels of thought. Uh, when we're talking about, you know, in mathematics, like an intense abstraction and things like this. And so in my research, what I'm really looking at is how um, in mathematics, in the reform movements of mathematics education since that have been happening really since the, um, the mid 20th century, we have operated even with our focus on equity with respect to black children from this position. Mm -hmm. So when we're trying to make education equitable, we're doing so from an assumption that there is something wrong with black children, that they are abnormal and they need to be fixed and made normal. Mm. So even often in our most generous of educational equity movements, because that is the assumption that we're op operating from, we can't actually get to something that is truly just or truly equitable, because what we're not doing is adjusting the way that we think about those children. Mm. What, we, what we do is we pat ourselves on the back when they achieve, and we say, essentially we've made them normal. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. and when there was nothing wrong with them in the first place. So what I do is I look at education policy, mathematics education policy, by extension, STEM education policy, to look at how really our education reform efforts and educational equity efforts have really been beneath the dignity of Black children. Um, and, and I'm talking in whole, I think we could name examples, counterexamples of things that, that have been wonderful, but, but I think as a whole strategy, mm-hmm. we could take it and say it's really beneath their dignity. And I have a mentor, Dr. Danny Martin at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he asked the question, what does it mean to create a mathematics education, or I would put mathematics in parentheses, an education that is worthy of Black children? Mm. Mm. And so what I do for my part of this question is to look at exactly what about this is unworthy. We have good intentions, but how is it that this gets structured as unworthy? Mm. And and then I, along with, with other colleagues who are more focused on the other side of the question, well, how do we then start to think about something that is worthy? Um, So it's really for me about understanding, I try to think generationally. So if you look at uh, myself being born in the United States, I've, I am the descendant of, of people who were enslaved. So uh, generations of, um, of ancestors who were educated in different ways, um, formally educated in US schools for about three, three or four generations now. And if I think about the concerns that my mother had for me as a child mm. in schools and the concerns that her mother had for her, um, they were a little bit different. My mother grew up in the South. My mother was born in 1951. Wow. So in, and she lived in, in the Mississippi Delta. And I was born in 1978 and lived in, in mm. New Jersey. So different on some in some senses, but this idea that I want to make sure that the education system does right by my child and I don't trust them to do so. Yeah. And I have to micromanage them. That's the same concern that my grandmother had for my mom, that my mom had for me. I don't have children, but I can say that by the way you're nodding your head that you have for your <laughs> your daughters and that your daughters will likely have for their children yeah. if we don't start to think about this differently. So what I like to think about is what does it mean if I'm looking at a second grader today? Mm-hmm. How do I think about education reform? And maybe reform is not the way to think about it, but how do I think about changing education such that that child does not have to carry the same concerns for their children yeah. that their parent carries for them? Mm. If we don't start to think about this generationally, then what we'll do is we'll keep doing what we call, we'll keep settling for incremental progress, meaning today is a little bit better than yesterday was. And that's important for that little second grader. We need Wednesday to be better than Tuesday and Thursday to be better than Wednesday. We need that. But if that's all that we settle for 20 years from now, 25 years from now, when that second grader has a second grader, then that second grader, that parent will still be looking for Wednesday to be a little bit better than Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And this is why we haven't seen the progress. Mm. So what I'm looking at is how do I untangle what gets us to this place of just kind of seeing incremental progress as a success? And then how can we untangle that to get us out of that 
um, that cyclical, that kind of generational cycle yeah. that we've been caught in. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we could have a whole conference on this one piece that you talked about. Cause, and the one thing that I, that I'm feeling here and it, it's so emotional for me, but is when you said creating an education worthy of black children. And, you know, as someone who believes that how we do one thing extends to how we do everything, then it takes me to a bigger question, a question that says creating a life that is worthy of black children and, and us, you know? And so, and as you've talked about how generationally we have passed down a sense of accepting less, right? Um, because like you said, in your mother's time and her mother's time before her, it was survival, you know, it was segregation and, you know, and hey, we just want to make go to school, come back safely, you know, and it's, it's sad because I've even had conversations and I didn't grow up, I didn't go to school here as in high school, I went to high school in, in Nigeria. And one of the gifts of my education was I didn't have that pressure. And in fact, I went to an all girls high school. So gender, we didn't have a race issue and gender was even taken out of the equation. So I had the luxury and I understand it now to be a luxury of being educated in such a way that the assumption was I was the best. Like the only thing stopping me from being the best was my own willingness to put in the work or not. There was no, you're a girl. So you don't, we don't expect higher from you. There was no, you're black. So we, there was none of that. It was like, oh, you are a, I went to a school called Queens College. You are a QC girl. So we actually expect the best from you. Do you know your legacy? And I came here with that understanding, which has carried me through even till today when I walk into a room that that energy walks in with me. It's part of the thing that I carry. And I realized that I am not able to transfer exactly the same thing to my daughter, right? Because she's going to school in a different place. And I remember we had a conversation recently and we're in Georgia and there was an experience that she had. And I was saying, okay, so let's discuss what we want to do because we have to decide which battle is worthy of fighting. We're in, and I literally said, and now that you're saying this to me, like it's clicking. I said, we're in Georgia. And this was uh, back in the past administration. I'm not even going to name, like, you know, so some things were coming up and I was saying, we're in Georgia. This is the administration the U.S. is under right now. We're experiencing a lot of things as a result of that. And so let's decide what we're going to do and let's decide whether or not this is something we want to pitch a fight for here or do we want to say, listen, we're going to move forward past this and gain more power to leverage later on, let's get you into a, a college that will be your choice and get you some power. What do we do? And these are the conversations we have. So I am so glad that you were talking about it from sort of a, another perspective as well saying, okay, this is how we need to look at this, this system. So I, make, I mean, I've told you before and I'm gonna keep telling you, well done sister, keep going. You know, it's such important work. Uh, and even I know people listening to this podcast are hearing and, and connecting to it the way I'm connecting to it. 
And I know that there's an extension of that work that you're doing, right? Because there is the research and the research and changing policy change that you're doing um, for the system. But there's another piece that you've also taken on on your own, which is a mentorship piece around getting more uh, women of color into academia. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Um, I wish I could say that there was this great intention connected to starting to work with this. The truth of the matter is that um, as a Black woman in the academy, there are few of us. And when you show up in a particular place, um, you tend to be a magnet for, for Black women, either younger faculty. And when we talk age in academia, we're talking in terms of years and in, um, in uh, the professorate. So either younger faculty or um, graduate students, mm -hmm. uh, things like that, who uh, just kind of gravitate towards you for support, for advice, for mentoring, all of those things. Um, it is you know, part of the tax of being a black person mm -hmm. in academia. And I would, I would argue probably anyone from a minoritized group would, would feel the same, but it is also a pleasure. Um, and I found myself in a situation at the start of the pandemic where um, I was, I was actually not teaching. I was on a fellowship at the time. And when the pandemic started, I saw all my colleagues kind of scrambling to put classes online and all of this. And thankfully, I didn't have that burden because I was on a fellowship, but I thought, you know, what can I do to be helpful? Mm -hmm. And I started um, just running a writing room every morning for uh, five days a week. I would have a two hour uh, Zoom, I think I did on Zoom or WebEx at the time. Um, and it was just two hours where it was open. And if you had writing to do, you could come. We didn't talk. We just sat there and wrote. But it was a way for people to make an appointment with themselves and their writing. And um, I started doing that because I knew I had graduate students who were trying to write uh, dissertation proposals, dissertations, uh, finished course papers, things like that. And also faculty colleagues who um, we're feeling all different ways <laughs> due to quarantine. And, and I thought this was something very easy for me to do. I was writing anyway, so it was very easy for me to do. And I started this room and I noticed that there were a few black women um, who were showing up, some I knew and some I didn't know, who were defending dissertations and accepting um, faculty positions around this time. So we're talking about April, 2020. And one day I sent an email to a few of them and just said, hey, you know, you're getting ready to make this transition from graduate school to um, uh, roles as professors or postdoctoral fellows or, or whatever they were doing after. And I said, you know, would you like to talk and just see um, is, you know, this is a big transition. Do you have questions, anything I could do? So we set, set this meeting and we sat and talked and we've been meeting, I think, bi-weekly ever since. Wow. So this started, <laughs> this started in, I think, like June, 2020. And um, they're, so they're just a special group of people, like some of them I've never met in person, mm. um, but we've developed a wonderful relationship, a wonderful bi-directional relationship. And I really had the privilege to work with them, to mentor them, and I'm grateful that they trust me to do so. But this is something, a role that I found myself falling into a lot <laughs> is, is this role of, of mentoring people and really trying to 
support, again, graduate students and younger faculty to think about their careers very strategically, mm -hmm. but also from a little bit differently than we're told to think about it in academia. So often we're told, you hear the phrase publish or perish. You need to produce a lot, produce often, and, and all of that is true, <laughs> but um, it's a very, um, what I would now come to call soulless way of thinking about the, about uh, the academy and, and what we would call the life of the mind. Mm. And I just have always felt like, and I, I don't know that this was intentional, it's just, it's the way that I've done it and, and it has worked. But I've always felt like it's there's more to it than that. I do um, publish. I try to publish often, but I try to um, really, I, I try to really seek significance mm -hmm. in what I do and in how I do it, and to make decisions that keep me. I remember leaving graduate school, going to the University of Memphis, which is not where I am now. Not the highest ranked place, great place, but. I remember saying, I really like this move for myself because I want to be a slow burn. I don't want to be a quick mm. spark. Mm. And I wanted to make sure that though my fire might not be the, the biggest and brightest, um, that it will burn in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years um, beyond my being here. The beauty of, of having being in a position where I publish work is that that doesn't go away. Mm. So um, so that was my concern. And I think the way that I was trying to uh, establish my career was something that I wanted to share with uh, these women that I worked with and that I've shared with my graduate students over time to really think about how to craft a career that outlasts you. Mm. And, um, and also a career where people can look at you and say, you know, I really appreciate the way that she works, the way that she operates, her temperament. Um, and I've tried my best. There are people that I have actually sought out because I'm a, I'm a relatively soft-spoken person. I'm quieter. So I, I sought out people who I saw who were like that, but really had a heavy presence mm. and paid attention and, start, and tried to think about how can I do this and be the best that I can be in the skin that I'm in mm. and not having to turn off on a totally different different person in order to to do my work but to try my best to be consistent and I've I've succeeded and I failed and I've succeeded and I failed it and and but just trying to work that out and trying to just pass along to others um building a career in that mode so um as I said these women have have graciously trusted me to to support them and they've nudged, they say, well, I have a friend, you know, can I, can I send them to you for some coaching? What do you charge? What do you charge? <laughs> say, oh no. So they started planting this little seed. And, um, and so I have now started to think about coaching, but what I knew had to happen in between my thinking about, um, coaching other people or mentoring other people or whatever that looks like, I'm still forming it. Mm -hmm. Um, between where I was and that, I had some work that I had to do because as you said, there's this heart component. Mm. And I think what I came to realize, I didn't have words for it, but mm. what I came to realize was that my identity is one of my professional tools. Mm. And 
I could not operate out of balance between my professional self and my personal self mm. forever. So I am one of those people who um, was always taught that, you know, your identity is caught in, in your work and how, you know, you, you work hard, you're a hard worker and people will value that. And that works for a while. <laughs> but it comes to a point where you say, okay, um, I've built myself to where I want to be professionally. Mm. And I have this kind of shell of an identity connected to that. But I need to start to fill this shell up mm. um, by making sure that I'm attending to the things um, in my personal life, and I don't mean I wasn't doing anything crazy or anything like that, but just making sure that I had um, a solid sense of who I am and a dealt with, you know, issues related to trauma, related to um, self-esteem, all of those things, um, and, and use that to fill that shell up into a whole person. Yeah. And I think a lot of times women um, professional women create kind of a persona. We call it a brand sometimes. <laughs> and that persona is mm -hmm. really kind of a shell. It's, mm. it's the person that we play on TV mm. and it's rather two dimensional. Mm. And I think there comes a point in our professional lives that I had reached about a year and a half, two years ago, where I felt like if I don't fill this, this shell up and make it three dimensional, Mm -hmm. It's going to fall over. It, it, it's either going to fall over at worst, or it's just going to stand here and not be able to do all that it's intended to do because it doesn't have the flesh to it to get it done. Mm. And um, so once I started working on that through the mastermind, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, then I started to see, okay, now I have something that I can share with other people with a lot more integrity mm. than I had prior because it was before it was kind of the way that I think. Mm. But then I started to take the risk to make sure that it was really the way that I lived mm. and to fix any um, places where that wasn't congruent. Yeah. I never felt like I was living a lie. Of course, no. But, but I did feel like there were places where I was acting to cover things yep. that I had not really dealt with. And um, so in the process of doing that, now I feel like, okay, how do I think about sharing this way of thinking with women who are academics um, to help them to try to build a career that honors who they are fully as intellectuals, honors their mind, honors their soul, honors their body, honors their spirit. Um, and I think the work that grows out of that is just so much more meaningful um, and, and um, serves the world in such, um, such a greater way. So I'm excited about that. Oh my goodness. I knew that this episode would be yummy. <laughs> well, because you know, you guys hear Erica's voice and uh, da -da. listen, wake up. If you were, if you were drifting, if you were, you know, relax, wake up, come on back into the room because I know her voice is so soothing and, you know, and she's talking about like high level thinking. You're like, oh yes, lullaby, right? So I knew it was going to be like, 
voice, but you know, the depth of uh, the soulfulness, you have a very soulful quality. I know you've heard this and, and that's what I hear you talking about when you're talking about the two dimensional, um, the, what, one of the ways when you were describing, it's not like you're living a lie, right? It's that we have learned how to perform ourselves versus and you having the willingness to go through you know when they talk about storming forming to go through the all the stuff that is required to really form to really be and this the willingness to go through what some call the dark night of the soul to really get to know yourself to really face yourself to really see your your greatness and your challenges in order to do what I believe God said you know, he said that I came that you would have life and have it to the full. So that piece of having it to the full is bringing all of yourself to the table. And I love the visual you gave living in 5D versus 2D. And so many of us are living that way. And um, the other thing I wanted to uh, call out and you told your story, particularly around how you went from opening the writer's room because you wanted to, you you saw a need, right? And you wanted to fill a need to all the way to, what do you charge for coaching? Which we're, we're gonna talk about in a bit. <laughs> okay. Because to me, there is a story. I know you didn't want to quote the scripture earlier on, but anyone who listens to the, this podcast knows that straight up, we just go into it. It might as well be church at times. That's but, right. um, and you know, I love a Bible story. You start, it reminded me, of one of my favorite stories, um, because I feel like it's a spiritual business model. And it is the widow and her oil. Mm-hmm. When she goes to the prophet and says, I have nothing, I don't have any money, I need food, I need money. And he says, well, what do you have in your hands? And she says, just a little bit of oil. And he says to her, go and get all the empty vessels in your community. So you saying, what are the needs in my community? Not the vessels that are full, but the vessels that are empty. You saying, what are the needs and how can I fill those needs, right? And then you started to pour this oil and you saw more needs. I see that you guys are about to embark upon this new journey or transitioning. How can I help you? Again, pouring more oil. And when I, I've taught on this uh, thing, this particular story, and sort of the revelations that I got from it as a an entrepreneur, as an as a w- entrepreneur of faith, one of the things that for me is the pouring of the oil allows for a season of mastery. You know, it's interesting, just this morning I saw lovely young, a young lady, but just really clearly very, very young and nothing to say, not to say that a young person cannot be an expert, but what she was saying she was an expert in, I didn't see the evidence of it with the way she was presenting herself. And I realized, you know, we are living in a time when we are, uh, yes, we stop before we're ready. Yes, we, um, you know, don't let anyone tell you you're not worthy and all of that. Absolutely, all of that is true. But there's also being willing to have a season of pouring the oil. And because when you're pouring the oil, uh, you're getting experiential revenue, not necessarily financial revenue, which is what you were doing. You're pouring that oil. I believe because she started to pour the oil, there was no, uh, she only had a little bit. But as she started to pour the oil, the oil was getting multiplied. But here's the other thing I believe. Not only was it getting multiplied, it was getting refined. It was getting refined. And it was only after she was she had poured all the oil, she went back to the prophet and he says to her, now, 
go and sell the oil. So this is the piece. You know, you know, you and I have had a strategy session as part of your mastermind program, and um, we talked about it's time to sell the oil, honey, because yes. you know that's the monetizing. And monetizing, not everything needs to be monetized, but monetizing this, especially when people are now asking you how much do you charge, which means the time for the pouring of the oil in the empty vessels, right, has passed. And if you continue to pour the oil like that, what happens is it starts to fall on the ground, which is when you start to see people are contemptuous of it. They stop showing up for the meetings. They, they just don't have, they don't appreciate it the same because you're pouring into people who are now full. But it is now time to move into the marketplace, right? And so that is, you know, it's now time. A lot of people are resistant to that, right? And some of the things we do in the mastermind are preparing you, one, to, to your point, for a more soulful way of living as a woman. But then there's also the changing of the way you see yourself. I know in particular, we had some conversations around branding, right? Uh, and, and, you know, getting ready for the marketplace. We don't, I don't typically talk a, a lot about how much of that we do in the mastermind, but I wanted to ask, based on all the things you said now that you're getting ready to go sell your oil, because I know you are, right? <laughs> Among other things, yes. And also elevating the level of impact of your research, because we prepare for me as a coach and for the mastermind, my goal is to prepare you and to help you see, if you don't already see it, to help you see it. And if you see it, to help you develop a strategy and a pathway to it, for higher impact in your work, in your purpose work, right? As well as other possible ways to monetize and increase income and wealth. And so we've, we've seen this right now with the work that you've done. So I want to ask, what are some of those things that you learned or came to awareness of and how has it informed how you're going to now go forward and what are your next steps? that one of the things that I learned is that my voice matters other than just sounding great, which you're always telling me. <laughs> I'm learning to embrace. Um, it, yes. it actually matters. I remember writing a blog um, a while ago, a few years ago, um, about this idea of having an expensive voice and expensive in the sense that I paid a lot to be able to um, know and understand what I know. I paid a lot in terms of education, in terms of experience, in terms of mistakes, in terms of successes to be able to use my voice and, and to have the wisdom that I have gained and that, I, that um, I continue to gain by God's grace. And so, but I, I think I've understood my voice is expensive, but I think one of the things that I didn't fully understand until the net last few months, I would say, is that what I say matters to people. It touches people. People identify with um, what I have to say and, and how I think and feel about, I have a lot of, of opinions and a lot of very <laughs> informed opinions and uninformed opinions about a lot of things. But um, I think... I would say to myself, well, nobody really 
this is just me. I only think like this. Nobody really cares what I have to say. They don't, um, this, this won't resonate with anyone. This one. And I found after a few exercises with the mastermind to, to, to speak out. And I saw people say, oh, I so identify with this. I need you to tell me more about this. I need you yeah. to talk more about that. And these things were not necessarily in line with the things that I am a certified expert of if you if you look at you know degrees and things as, as certification um and I think I that's probably one of my biggest realizations is that um there is someone out there I, you know preachers will say I don't care if I'm preaching to one person mm. um this idea that there is someone out there and if I have uh the words if I have the experience um, none of that is wasted. And there is someone out there for whom there is something um, in my experience, in my words, that can be beneficial, that can be helpful in some way. So I think recognizing myself as someone who has credibility on a lot of different, um, from a lot of different domains in order to actually share with people is, uh, has been an important realization for me. Um, and I think one of the others would be uh, starting before I'm ready. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a perfectionist also. I have that. I, I definitely um, have perfectionist tendencies, I will say. And I think, okay, I have to have everything exactly right before I move. But then I find myself scrolling through social media or I was listening to a podcast the other day and um, there were a group of about four, um, four people, I believe they were all graduate students, talking about some pretty deep concepts. And I noticed that every time they would reference something, I'd say, that person didn't write that. <laughs> or this person, I'm thinking, it's not that what they're saying was, was, was bad or invalid or, or anything like that, but I said, wow, they, they haven't done the mastery work. That's so right. for me, it was kind of two poles, either you're ready or you're not ready. And I always saw myself as sitting at not ready because it wasn't perfect. And I think one of the things that I've learned is to identify what things need to be built to have, um, going back to your story, to get a B plus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does an A minus look like? Mm -hmm. What does an A look like? What does an A plus look like? Mm -hmm. And say to myself, okay, if I can get to B plus, I'm okay starting at B plus. Right. Because I trust myself that I'm not going to rest at that B plus. So the next shot is going to be an A minus. Yeah. And the next shot is going to be an A. And um, rather than thinking I'm sitting at F and if I don't have an A, <laughs> then, then I can't move That's right. because there are so many things that you can't learn until you, yeah. until you move Get in it. And yeah, Moses wasn't able to see God's miracles until he actually threw the staff down. Okay. Now God said, what is in your hand? And if he never threw it, then, you know, then he wouldn't have never seen hmm. God's hand work in that way. So you have to make the move but you also have to recognize what's in your hand, make sure that what's in your hand is formed enough for you to make a move responsibly. That's right. And then once you make that responsible move, recognizing mastery is part of that responsibility. Once you make that responsible move, then you continue to build to make the next responsible move. 
And I think that has been probably one of my, those, those probably have been my biggest lessons that have, that have helped me to actually now start to form what I will um, begin to walk with yes. um, in terms of, in terms of this side. I think another thing is, as, as you're alluding to about our conversation about branding, um, people who are intellectuals are a bit snobbish about the idea of branding and I'm absolutely, I've absolutely been that way. You yeah. know, it's the idea that, um, you know, my, almost like my brain is my brand in a way that, that, that I'm, a, I am a person of substance. I don't need to worry about, about these things. And, um, so learning that the way that I package myself, not just my, myself physically, mm-hmm. but just the way that I package who I am and what I do and um, both in terms of my research work and then also in terms of this work that I'm doing to try to support other academics, um, that, that does matter. Yeah. And, it, and it matters to the point that allows me to be more effective in what I do. So actually opening myself to embrace that because I think part of the reason a lot of us do this <laughs> is because we like hiding behind a book. Mm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. I used to say uh, until a few years ago, I tried to stop saying it. I say it occasionally now, if I'm honest. I used to say my goal in life is to be invisible. Mm. And I like that my name is out there and I just get to type on this keyboard and write these articles and write books and it's out there. And I don't necessarily have to be the face of what I do. Mm. And learning that I can be, again, a whole five-dimensional person, as you said, yeah. and still be um, one of one of my friends calls me one of the greatest thinkers in, in mathematics education, still be that um, while also being a five-dimensional person. That, that's something that I'm, um, that I have realized and I'm coming to, continually coming to understand about what that means in terms of how I do what I do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, in fact, I think the greatest coaching, the greatest mentoring, the greatest teaching is you living your life, the greatest preaching, right? Because you, and this is that piece of your call to be a city on a hill and a lamp that cannot be hidden. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that I too, I mean, when you said um, intellectuals are snob, can be snobbish. uh, I don't know that I fancy myself an intellectual, Mm -hmm. but I also had that sense of (laughs) I'm above this. And then I had to get real about Mm -hmm business and I and I've shared before on this podcast so I won't tell that story about the day the Holy Spirit jacked me up and gave me a new understanding about what branding is and the difference and we've talked about we talked about this in the mastermind the difference between branding from imaging versus branding from messaging and that's something that we really focus branding from a place of Mm -hmm. substance and, um, and I was just talking to another client the other day uh, who was reticent, <laughs> you know, having some challenges with some of the things we were discussing about around packaging and saying, oh, this feels very shallow. And I was like, well, when you get into a pool, you have to go through the shallow to get to the deep. So some of that is necessary. But to your point, we do need to have the depth. And that's really important to me. And we have a responsibility, as you said, for mastery, right? And for doing the things that are uh, really important to do to make sure that we can carry this, um, the work that we have to do. There was a thought I had in my mind and I just lost it. 
you know, hello, menopause. <laughs> I'm not a menopause yet, but you know, I don't know what's going on. But um, I did want, before I forget that, before I get back to that, because I'm hoping it will come back to me <laughs> because it felt very deep at the time. But they, I just say you have been dropping some um, t-shirt branding, um, ch like chapters of your book titles. So what I said was my voice, when you said my voice is expensive, I had to write that down. I was like, oh, I like that. My voice is expensive. And I was, I've been thinking about that um, idea of my voice being expensive. And I know you hear me say this all the time. I would say, yes, it is. And it's also necessary. Right. But I want to even go, I feel like there's a, there's a connect, connection between the two terms and perhaps we need to put heads together at some point and, and brainstorm mm -hmm. on this between it is both expensive and necessary. And so it is a, um, what is the word where it's, it's, you know, when someone is a tastemaker that mm -hmm. you are both high value and necessary, you are, you know, you change, like if I stuck it into the water, it would change the direction of the current. That's mm -hmm. the kind of thing I want you to, like, I feel like Erica, that is your voice because it does it's so powerful and so necessary and so I'm so excited that you have decided to come out from behind the book <laughs> honestly because you carry the weight and now I didn't know this before today right that you had ancestral weight right mm -hmm. you had like leg a legacy behind you so you carry the weight and I dare say, if we were to have a conversation with the, with the people in your, your ancestors, that there may have been similar conversations that they've had. So it has been building and building and building and building. And it is now your time to arise and shine for your light has come. And so I'm excited that you have decided to step out and, and to do this next level of work. And I'm grateful that you were willing to partner and come into the mastermind and do the inner work, right? And, and to wade past the stuff. And now you are going to do your next level work. And do you want to commit? Do you want to tell us what some of the things <laughs> that are coming or at least that you can share? And yes. how can people find you? Because I know people are going to listen to this and say, I want her to be my coach. She may not be, I don't know if she's coaching yet, but I want to get her on, on her waiting list. What can I do? <laughs> what can we do? How can they reach you? <laughs> Well, um, yes, I am just forming um, these these ideas, so I'm not quite ready to take people on yet, but um, that will be coming in the next few months. I've given myself uh, a deadline to get things done in the second quarter of this year, so, um, <laughs> so I will be um, prepared to begin uh, working with people then, but the uh, brand is titled The Soulful Academic, um, borrowing from uh, the <laughs> borrowing from the um, the work done in the mastermind where um, you were talking about this idea of soulful success and I kept continually asking myself what is soulful success for myself as an academic what does soulful academic success look like and um, as I begin to and continue to form that for myself I'm also um, hoping to share that with others. So that is the, the name of the brand. I will be beginning in uh, by the end of March.
March, you will see um, a podcast. <laughs> and the podcast will, um, similar in format to yours, probably include interviewing and, and things like that of people whom I admire. Um, um, I'm putting a down payment on you as one of my guests. <laughs> Honored. <laughs> um, uh, who can help us to think about these things and, and who try to uh, work through their academic lives in this way. But what I will be starting with is what I call the tenure track devotional. Mm. And what that is, is it's going to be a series of five to 10 minute um, messages just to encourage uh, people who are academics. And when I say tenure track, I don't just mean assistant professors. I mean, anyone who is um, in this tenure space or, or in the tenure line, be it graduate students, all the way to full professors um, who are trying to deal in a profession that is pretty much characterized by rejection, by um, criticism and scrutiny and very intense scrutiny and um, to really provide encouragement to those of us who are, who are living in this world and trying to figure our way through this world and figure out how to um, live life as an academic well and in five dimensions, as you said, I'm going to keep borrowing that. <laughs> and, um, so I, uh, this actually came up uh, again, one of uh, my very first blog that I ever wrote was I had been rejected from a fellowship that I really wanted and was me kind of working through this idea of all things working together for good. And how mm -hmm. do I think about that in the face of of a pretty, what I felt was a pretty intense rejection. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember when I posted that blog, I think this was back in 2014 or 15, I posted that blog and I used hashtag tenure track devotional. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a few other things and used that. And, and I realized I, uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit a few uh, weeks ago, that um, this was something that, um, that I am uniquely positioned in terms of my voice that I have paid for. So it is expensive. And um, it is also something that is necessary to the community of academics who don't find a lot of spaces of encouragement. Um, so this will be my first uh, project as part of the Soulful Academic. So you could look for that podcast coming, um, like I said, the end of end of March, beginning of April. I'm starting to write those and record them now. So in the meantime, if you'd like to find me, you can find me at www.ericacbullock.com and Erica spelled with a K, E-R-I-K-A-C-B-U-L-L-O-C-K.com. Um, you can read some of my blogs there if you're interested. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Erica Bullock and on Instagram at Dr. Erica, E-R-I-K-A-C-B. Um, you can find me there and the Soulful Academic will be coming very soon. Woohoo! <laughs> I am so, my, let me just say, I feel so warm and fuzzy on the inside. Erica, I am incredibly inspired and proud of you. Thank you for being the woman that you are, because um, you are an example. I'm look, literally looking at my vision board as I'm recording this, and I had on there, you know, soul sisters, right? And I used to claim it, even before I started this version of the, this and final version of the mastermind, I claimed it in my personal life and my professional life, that I would have the kinds of clients that just 
brought joy to me. And you are a living, walking testimony and gift. So, and not just to me, I'm sure everyone in your life says the same thing. Uh, so thank you for being who you are. Thank you for coming on this podcast. Uh, thank you for blessing us in so many ways. So uh, you are witnessing the birth of the soulful academic. And I mean, what a perfect name. I can just say, welcome to the soulful academic. <laughs> It is the quiet storm. <laughs> Erica, you are amazing. You are amazing. Thank you. Your so listeners much. can't see me blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I blush whenever she mentions my voice. But I have to say, Ekne, thank you for following your heart in uh, developing the Iconic Womanhood Mastermind Program and uh, the Womanhood Course, which have been, I mean, when the story of my career and life are told, this will be a pivotal part um, in that story. And I am just grateful for you for following um, those inclinations and urgings that you that you have had that have brought this to fruition because it's meant so much if no one else ever says it then I was the one person that you were speaking to so um, thank you for that thank you I receive that with grace and and humbly I appreciate you very much so everyone this has been an amazing podcast episode we are going to say goodbye and we will be here next week with even more god bless you be well we hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend. If you are listening to this show, it probably means you are ready to move from success into significance. Please visit us at iconicwomanhood.com and get a free gift to help you on your journey.